Hey, what is going on, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. A boat's a boat, but the mystery box could be anything. It could even be a boat. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking this fine afternoon? I'm fabulous, because I am drinking a Kagua, or I believe that's what you call it. You, you'll have to correct me. Uh, is it? Well, and, and it looks I, fairly Chinese on the front. Oh so. my god, I I am only offended because I thought you were like a, a J- Japanese culture connoisseur. This is a Japanese beer. Is it Japanese? And I'm okay. only drinking so, it to troll you. Although it is delicious. Is it good? Yeah, it's I mean, good. I think it's it would a, be Kagua. But so the thing with the Japanese and Chinese, I don't know anything of Chinese except mm. for that a lot of the kanji in Japanese are taken from china so when i'm trying to discern between chinese or japanese text like the telltale sign for me that it's japanese is that there's hiragana or katakana in there and if Mm. there's not it could still be japanese but in my mind it's like it's more likely to be chinese because they write exclusively in kanji Hmm. and that's what i saw in your bottle i didn't see any of those simpler (laughs) characters but hey i guess we usually drink more japanese beer at least so you said a lot of things and they were very impressive, and I, I maybe super didn't understand what you said. <laughs> All right. I, I, I Japanese has three alphabets. I'll put it that way. Uh-huh. And I only saw the one big, most complex one that they share with Chinese. Uh, so usually, I okay. if I see in like a, a sentence with only that alphabet, quote unquote, um, then I think it's Chinese. Like that's my guess. You said kanji or something, and my eyes rolled into the back of my head, and (laughs) (laughs) there's this block of time that I just don't remember. I'm just going to nope out of this conversation. (laughs) So I'm not drinking anything interesting. I'm just drinking water. But you know what I did find? Ever again. Uh, Well, I had some hot sake last night. Mm. That was pretty tasty. We went to a, a really great ramen place here. So at the store, I found... I'm like trying to. Oh my god! Yesterday was Monday. Wait, in Denver oh, Sunday. Time. It was Sunday. Sorry. I I, th- I, th- I think you're bullshitting me. I last think you night, drank sake on Monday. No, I drank wine last night. So okay. usually we're trying to drink only on the weekends, but if we have a bottle of wine, I'm not gonna let it sit there and get bad for an entire week. So <laughs> we made Spoken our dinner like and we finished, we finished the wine. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been trying to train myself to like dark chocolate because it's more healthy for you, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not quite there yet, but I did find they sell this dark salted brown butter chocolate. Oh my God. It it's looks good. so good. The brown butter flavor makes mm. it like really good. So I'm going to eat that on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you know what? You know what? Uh, butter is really good on everything ah damn it that was my i thought it was a clever joke but it wasn't (laughs) (laughs) all right so we have five questions for you guys today i like five questions episodes because they give me a chance to practice my reading skills (laughs) and um we also get to just riff on five questions i don't know it's fun we don't have to spend like 18 hours researching the national debt that's true. Though and when I'm, you say we, you mean me. Whoa, I did it too. <laughs> okay. All you, right. you are not giving me enough credit, good sir. You know what? I, I we, thought you left that one to me. I didn't realize. Uh, we, I do research too, so sometimes. All right. Yes, you do. You <laughs> do. national debt. Like I did all the research on debt monetization and everything. And we had that whole that argument about how money creation is linked to the debt and everything like that. 
So, which to come to speak of that, we've got the uh, money creation episode coming up at some point here in the future. So, Whenever you're ready to do the research, sir. Yeah, I know the research binge is coming. Uh, mm. Give me a little time. I got some videos that need editing. <laughs> Deal. Uh, I'm trying to like get into more of like a TV writer stage with my videos where I maybe like write a season of content up front. Mm. I don't know how good I'm going to be at that, but that's my new aspirational goal. Anyway, let's get into one of these questions here. We should have like a sound effect. I'm just kidding. We shouldn't. It would be really cheesy, but it just seems like it would go here. Question number one. I've got a question about investing. This comes from Kaylee. I'm using Betterment right now and hoping to start a Vanguard account soon. So if I own VTI in Betterment and I own VTI in my Vanguard account, is there any point to buying single stocks in say Apple or Amazon or another company that is already in the VTI fund since I already own those companies within those funds because I own them? So clear answer here, I think, if you own VTI, then... Mm -hmm you technically you own some Apple stock or I guess technically you're going to get returns from the VTI fund. I'm not sure if you actually have your name on Apple stock or not, Mm. but the effective, you know, end of that is Apple. If it, if, if it's in VTI, it's one tiny portion of Mm. every fund that's within VTI, which means that if Apple has a spectacular year, their returns are going to be offset. They're going to be part of the average return of every fund within the VTI. So if you really wanted to own a significant chunk of Apple to potentially cash in on big gains, then that's your reason for owning it. And I think you do own some Apple stock and I'm sure you own Vanguard funds that also have Apple. But again, it's like the difference of, you know, if I have a thousand dollars worth of VTI, maybe I've got like $50 of Apple. Well, Mm -hmm. if Apple has a crazy good year, then I get $50 worth of the returns on that. If I own $1,000 of Apple, then I have a, you know, proportionately bigger true dollar return on that. So absolutely agree. And I think it it just comes down to like how much you believe in Apple or Amazon or or whatever the company is, if you want to go heavier in. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't change your answer at all, but there is actually... It's not a question, but there's like a hidden issue in this that, that I wanted to bring up. Really? Um, yeah. So um, that one of the cool features of Betterment is that they do tax loss harvesting. And so what happens is uh, as stocks go up and down, and we have like great episodes on this. I think we've talked about it multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially... Uh, they, they harvest the times when the stock goes down to carry forward some losses to offset gains, blah, 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 fancy math thing. However, you can't own the Betterment funds outside of Betterment because it mucks up tax loss harvesting because they're not able to see and understand all of your assets. So when they do tax loss harvesting, it may not be correct because you've actually also bought these funds elsewhere. Wait, really? Yeah. So I guess the question is, I I have funds in Vanguard Mm. and I have some Betterment funds. I imagine there's some overlap in the companies there. No, so so it's not the company problem. It is that the exact fund. Oh, the so, exact fund. Yeah. So, like, so is it a problem you, if like the same fund that I have in Vanguard is in Betterment? 
you know um how do you tell them if like oh yeah i already have this in front of vanguard like don't do tax loss harvesting like i don't i guess i've never heard of that so what what will happen is so if you're using TurboTax or you go into a tax person whatever um it, it will probably true up to less of a benefit than oh, okay right like so where they where they're taking action to save you money you could be potentially negating it by taking your own actions on the exact same funds but it's not going to like break it's it's not going to cost you more money <laughs> okay. and i guess if you think of it like this if you were just buying vti you know you're yeah. going to pay taxes on your gains taxes harvesting is like savings in the right. sense like so so you would have less savings um okay. Because, yeah, VTI is sitting in Betterment, and I'm pretty sure I also own that in Vanguard. So, so I what I would out. do is, like, you you look at your breakdowns in, in Betterment. Um, you know, and if you really like VTI, you could obviously move the um, performance slider okay. to, to go harder risk or, or whatever. Um, and I, I would just get a different equivalent in Vanguard. There's so many that serve a very similar purpose. Like, the, I'm pretty sure VTI is a total stock market fund. Um but they also have yes. an S&P 500 fund, which is really, really similar to VTI. Is it? You know, I mean, the S&P 500, while not the same, it is meant to represent the market. Okay. Um, so it, it, like the, I guess the thought is that it'll achieve a very similar purpose in your portfolio. I will have to do some research on this. Because I mean, v I'll have to look at the S and P five hundred one. The expense ratio on VTI is 004 percent, which is pretty darn good. So don't even you know don't even go there, Thomas. Because I did the research on what I what I think are the best Vanguard funds okay. that I've aptly named on our site. Best Vanguard funds. Oh um, yeah, I remember you did do that. And and so we actually just redid the site, blah blah blah. And if you go to I believe the popular page, I think it's on there, or you could just search. Vanguard, and it should be like the first one that comes up. Okay. Um, I mean, I talk about the S and P five hundred fund. I talk about like strategic investment fund, and just all the ones that I thought were interesting. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Well, yeah, I guess go learn about some tax loss harvesting. Uh, loss harvesting. But yeah. In general, the the basis. If if you trust a company somehow, or you have reason to believe you should own it. Uh, and, you know, a greater proportion that we're going to get in VTI or any sort of mutual fund, there's your reason for buying it. Um, now, I, I'll take this this opportunity to reiterate what we've said a lot of times, which is that our personal approach to investing involves building a base in safer index funds or something like Betterment, which leans heavily on index funds until you have a good chunk of change in there. I think we've said $25,000 in the past. Mm. I see no reason to change that figure since there's not really a reason to not have $25,000 in uh, you know, stabler investments before you're going in on bigger stocks. And then from there, play around a bit. What I've learned actually though, is when I own individual stocks, it gives me anxiety mm. and I think about it way too often. I check. Yeah. I've owned Apple for like, I don't know, maybe 10 years at this point. And I still find myself every month looking, how's it going, reading the news where I have like 50 million better things to do with my life, like sleep or nothing. Yeah. As opposed to checking an inconsequential number. Anyways, to put a bow on this one, all like the, the tax loss harvesting, the betterment funds list, uh, the ultimate 
investing blueprint that you're referencing all will be in the show notes. They have episodes attached. So you can just like go down an episode hole and kind of do that. Yeah. Check it all out. All right. Question number two comes from Ricardo. Started listening to you guys and guests about two weeks ago and was wondering if y'all can help me with my student loan dilemma. So I've got this zero interest credit card and I've had it for a little over a year and now I'm wanting to pay off my student loan uh, balance of $11,000. But my credit union will not take a credit card payment. It's got to be a debit card or a secured credit card. Now, I tried to tell a company that refinances student loans that you mentioned in an ad, but I didn't graduate from school. Or, but I didn't graduate from the school I went to and I didn't qualify for it. So I'm guessing they didn't qualify for uh, SoFi. Right. So basically, the gist of this is he's got this 0% or, interest or credit Lend card. Key. Or maybe Lend Key. Key. Is, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's got this 0% interest credit card and he's wondering, quite logically, can I pay down some of my student loan balance, which has an interest rate, and then put the balance over to my 0% interest credit card? Mm. Maybe you have an answer for this, but... I, I honestly don't know if the bank won't take a credit card payment. Like, I don't know. What do you do? Like buy Amazon gift cards and then sell the gift cards to somebody for cash <laughs> and then some crazy roundabout scheme. The one thing I will mention before you say the answer that I'm sure you have is uh, pay attention to the terms of that credit card. Mm. Because if you put a huge ass balance on that credit card and then realize, oh, the 0% interest was only for three months and then it goes up to 25 after that, like it's, read the fine print. <laughs> yeah. So, so one, I'd be like, don't do it just because like that, um, it just doesn't, it's not nearly as good a, an idea as you think. Um, What's the incentive for the credit card company to give you 0% interest long-term? Well, none. Right. And, and I think a lot of people miss the fact that it's like, I, they, it, it kind of, and this is why they do it is because it kind of implies that you don't need to pay, but actually you need to make monthly payments. Otherwise you get the full interest rate hit. It's like this like sick penalty that kind of, Oh yeah. If you like miss one payment, like you instantly go to the interest rate or something like that. Yeah. So, so if the minimum payments like $19 or whatever, like you just have to be sure that you pay that every month or you're going to get screwed. And trust me, they are counting on you getting screwed. Um, yeah. What if your car breaks down or something, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, on, on like, uh, well, you're like, well, they won't accept credit cards. Um, and, and if I was them, I wouldn't either. And I think it would be really hard to find someone who accepts credit cards for paying down like a student loan, oftentimes, uh, rent, uh, or a mortgage. And the reason is because if it's a debit card, it is your money. When it's a credit card, it's their money and they could potentially claw it back and blah, blah, blah. And so, mm. or, or like they could pay on your behalf and then you not pay the credit card. And so, uh, they, they, and also they could be charged processing fees for the credit card. So if you have to pay, oh, you know, a thousand dollars a month for your student loans or mortgage or whatever, they're not, they don't want to pay 2.9% on that to give you this benefit. Yeah. Um, and, and so that there's that. Uh, and then you're like, um, well, I couldn't refinance my loan. And I'm assuming that you tried SoFi, uh, which is awesome. And you tried LendKey, which I personally believe is more awesome because the rates are better and hmm. the whole community bank thing. But uh, you're right that neither of them will refinance if you didn't graduate. Uh, and so there is a company that will do it. But first, um, I want to I test you, Thomas. Do you know how many people... Uh, that go to college, like what percentage of people that go to college graduate? 
uh, let me try to pull the number from my brain because there's two different <laughs> figures. There's the number of people who graduate in total and then there's the number of people who graduate within four years. And the number 60% is in my head, but I can't remember which figure that is for. Of people who do or don't graduate. Who do. Oh, okay. But I, I, mean, I, I actually don't know a number other than it's less than half percent. Oh, half, you actually, you don't know? Yeah, I don't know the exact. Of people who graduate from college. See, this is this is like a, a stat that Adam Carroll has said on um, this podcast before, but it's also one of those percentage Wait, statistics. Which podcast? This one, I'm pretty sure. No, I, I know, you're like, <laughs> the way you said it. Uh, but, but anyways, yeah, I, I don't remember. You, I'll look it up later, you, but it's one of those yeah. stats that's like, it doesn't need to be at the ready because it's not actually that useful on a day-to-day no, basis. It, <laughs> there's, there's no use to it. I just thought it was interesting that half or less than half who set out to get a degree graduate. And it's not to say any, I mean, like uh, Bill Gates didn't graduate, but sure. whatever. Um, yeah. But I guess I guess the point being is that there's quite, there are quite a lot of people who are probably in this boat um, who want to refinance at shitty rates, but they didn't graduate. Mm-hmm. So uh, go to Citizens Bank. Um, and if you have an mm-hmm. iPhone and you're on the uh, upgrade payment plan, then uh, you probably already have an account with Citizens Bank. Um, they, they will do this for you. Uh, and there is one catch and that it's you need to have been – you need to have made for, – first of all, you need to um, – uh, be out of school. Like you can't be like midway through school. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to have made 12 on at least 12 on time payments. So if you left school, you know, and then you start paying it, it'll be a year from then. And if yeah. you made 12 on time payments, uh, they will do business with you. And, uh, shockingly or otherwise, the rates are really good. Uh, it, I was looking before and I want to say like, Actually, I'll pull it up now. It was as low as 3.11%, um, which is pretty low, in my opinion. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Most student loans are going to be higher than that now. Exactly. I mean, for the so, vast majority of people, unless you were in that nice little window that I was in where the hmm. federal loan rates were really low for a while. So, we'll include the links in the show notes. Um, and, uh, you know, for. All the things. If if you really love us, click on the links in the show notes. That's how we make money. Boom. Yeah. Mm. Question number three. Hello. This is from, well, this is from, I don't know. Oh, McKenna. I realized there was a bunch of details down there. So I've been binge listening to your podcast for the last several weeks, and I'm finally getting a grasp on investment strategies. Yay. My question is, does the 4% rule still apply if one is retiring early? Being conservative, I imagine it does. However, I feel like the ability to draw from a 401k or an IRA, Roth if possible, at age 59 and a half should be taken into consideration. Is this even practical? A calculator in a recent post suggests that it is more efficient for me to invest versus pay off my student loans faster. I agree, especially since I will likely be unable to contribute to a Roth IRA, um, like unable to, I don't know if she's saying hell yes, because she can't do it <laughs> in a few years as my bonus structure will change. She probably makes too much money oh, okay. to, to qualify. I think it would be useful to have a long-term goal value for my personal investment account at, and age for financial independence to channel the motivation of a tangible number, much like that used to pay off a debt. Never hurts to overestimate, but I'm not sure how to go about setting 
this goal. A little by myself, I'm 23 years old, single, no kids. I got $131,000 in student loans, half of them at 5.75% interest. I'm considering paying off the higher interest loans for psychological sake. I've got $100,000 plus uh, salary plus an estimated 810K bonus, zero current investments, zero credit card debt, zero car loan, no mortgage. Currently planning to buy it later this year. So going to have a mortgage, basically has a mortgage. Mm. Like it's coming in the future. Yeah. So I guess what it sounds like is she wants to have an early retirement goal with a solid number in mind in order to increase the motivation to save. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wants to figure Which out I how to set the goal. Which I think makes sense, right? Like you, you're like, all I have to do is save to a million or a hundred million or whatever your spending requirements are. And then you know you're done. Yeah. Which um, I think is awesome. And uh, <clears throat> I've kind of some, stopped caring about it. About the number? <laughs> yeah. I remember, you know, like four years ago, whenever it was, when I went on TV for it, it was like, I wanted to have $900,000 in 2014 dollars. So that way, mm. via the 4% rule, I would have $36,000 a year to live on. You know, that was, that's pretty good for Iowa. But I just don't care that much anymore. I guess I, I have no desire to, to like, I don't know. I have no desire to re- retire early. So um, at this point, I, I think it's and, and so I want I want to answer a question, but to maybe like uh, address that, uh, I think one one you're you're still young. It's true, and so like <laughs> the world is your oyster, Tom. It's like I, I guess from my perspective, for a while I wasn't so concerned because you know you, as long as you're doing the right moves, you know whether. You know, if your if your goal is I don't know, get a million dollars, and now you're just one thousand dollars closer, I I didn't find that. Um, if anything, that was mentally challenging to me because I was so far away. Yeah. But like, as, as you become more secure, I think it flips where you all you do is think about all of the things that can or will happen that will take everything that you've saved and invested away. You know, mm. all, all the reasons for failure and then everything you could do to prevent that. And so like, I'm kind of stuck in that mindset. And so I think while now, um, you shouldn't be so worried about that. Perhaps actually, you know what, if you're lucky when you're my age, you won't think about that because you know, well, I'm not saying that I don't care about saving. I'm just mm. saying like now I, I feel a little bit less motivated to shoot for a specific number. Because my life has changed a lot since I made that number, and like right. that number no longer applies. That's so, true. So what do you I do? Move just, to do a much I, more expensive area. And- yeah, but you know, what, so what do I do? Do I just say, "All right, I need to move that number up and double it"? Now I need one point eight million. Like, mm. you know, and then like every single time my life circumstances change, I just move the number, or do I just focus on saving a lot of money every month, and then? That's like my financial goal is basically what it is for me is I track my net worth once every three months and I track the percentage growth and I'm like, all right, if that's growing, unless there was an expense that was reasonable, then I'm doing so, well. Okay. I agree with you. And, and and maybe this is not a contrarian point of view, but maybe it's another like applicable reason. So my dad is like bumping right up to retirement age. Like he's, yeah. he's getting there. I mean, I talk to him and I feel like his mood changes. Maybe, maybe he wants to do another five years or three. I think it's 
kind of, uh, you know, d- depends on how things go and how he feels. He, he likes what he does. It's challenging. So, um, you know, he's there for now. But he's also trying to determine uh, what his spending needs to be in retirement and how long it can last. And, yeah. you know, you, you want to, like, plan for 30 years of spending retirement, but then also not have living to 35 years after retirement would be a bad thing. Right. And so the 4% rule, you know, and, and deviations of that, and I want to get into like the, the mathy things, it is like a good barometer mm-hmm. um, of that because, for you know, it helps saving up, but then also spending down, it can help you understand what you can and can't do. Like if, you know, my dad uh, retired and he's like, oh my God, I'm so rich. Uh, everyone in the family and all your friends are going on a hot air balloon ride around the world. <laughs> like it, it won't last, right? You know, yeah. so there has to be uh, intelligent restraint, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So what what is this chart that you have here in the show notes? Is this for so, this question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the 4% rule, uh, and we talked about this, I want to say like, Four or five years ago, and you know, on on the internets, they're, they're like, uh, it's broken, it's good, it's okay. You know, the the, the point being is that the four percent rule is uh, a ninety percent confidence level, and is generally like a moderate um, estimation. So, so what is what does confidence level mean? Confidence level means like. Uh, you know, like Monte Carlo simulations. Yeah. So to, to quickly explain, they they take you know a bunch of portfolios, you know, or just a general market portfolio, and and they run you know thousands of simulations on the past stock market performance at various times in history to essentially test what will happen in all those scenarios. Um, and they run an enormous amount of simulations, and that. You know, so if it's ninety percent confidence, essentially, what they're saying, and and I'll explain moderate conservative in a second. But if you had four percent, if you follow the four percent rule, in ninety percent of the simulations run, your money will last you forever. Okay, so so basically, via this chart, which I'm guessing we'll have in the show notes, um, if you had a so a moderate asset allocation, meaning it's like not literally just a bunch of bonds, you could take four percent, or you could take four percent of that. And in ninety percent of simulations, it's going to last. Whereas, like, if you had a super conservative one, then so yes, you can only take three point eight percent. Not, 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 not really. So, so um, you have to, uh, I think, be like seventy five percent stock, twenty five percent bonds, and or you know, it, it there there's certain requirements, and and we'll link to it. But the conservative moderate is more towards how much leeway you want. So if you look at like the chart moderate on this top level, you know, it's something that'll last you for 30 years is 3.9, but conservative is 3.8%. So you could be like, um, just follow the 3.8% rule and your money will last you forever type thing. And, And what they're doing is they're just basically saying, if you spend a little bit less, you know, so this is like a risk tolerance thing, right? Yes. So basically, like basically. the ninety percent confidence level means uh, nine times out of ten, if you take only three point nine percent of your retirement savings, 
every year, then it'll last you for 30 years given a moderate uh, asset allocation. Now, if you have a little bit more risk tolerance, then this chart has a 75% confidence level area where it's like 7.5 times out of 10, this is going to work. You could be taking 4.6% of it every single year and it'll still Mm. last you forever, you know, over a 30 year retirement. And then the chart goes down to like, what about 10 years? So, you know, say you only have 10 years to live for some reason, even with a conservative, you could take 10 point, yeah, 10.1%. What confuses me though is why- You're actually right. You're actually right on conservative moderate. It's, it's, it's the asset. That's allocation. what it seems like. So what I'm, yeah. what I'm confused about though is why for the 30 year is the withdrawal rate lower for conservative than it is for moderate. But then when you go down to 10 years, it's actually higher. Because it doesn't even last as long. So, mm. um, you're, and you're not getting that much. Ret- yeah, I don't know, actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand why it's saying you can only take 9.3% if you had a moderately aggressive portfolio, but you could take 10% if it was conservative. That is something maybe, that I Maybe don't because quite get. the, 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 uh, the volatility or the variance of your portfolio will be less if it's bonds. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyways. Go, go to the show notes. A picture is worth a thousand words, which I we perhaps uh, uttered. This, this may in, be something to talk about in a future episode. You know, like, we we can revisit the four percent. We, we could break this whole thing down because there, I, there's a whole article here that I hadn't seen before. I feel like uh, we did a, a decent job a million years ago when we initially recorded, but now we could we could crush it. So we do a real one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, for now, oh, let's move on to. Oh, and there is a PS in this question, a secret hidden question. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Do you said, have <laughs> a list of your favorite beers posted anywhere? So as of this moment, no. However, an, an awesome person emailed us and went into every single show notes and copied the beer with the link out. And so we're going to put it on a page. It's gonna be, it'll be listmymatters.com <laughs> slash beers. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of beers. <laughs> it actually is just a lot of beers. Like, it's going to have kombucha and kale juice and water for me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't say who drank it, but you know, 430 episodes worth of beer. It's mm. a lot. Question number four. This is from Brittany. Hey guys, I've been listening to your podcasts for a while and I've been learning so much. So thank you. I've got a few direct questions, and I know some of these have been answered in podcast episodes, but I wanted to ask directly for your feedback. I know you all prefer Mint, but I was wondering why this and not you need a budget. Why nap? What are the main differences, and why do you think Mint is better? My husband and I have been married for almost two years and never combined finances, so I guess this is question number two. Should we? Why or why not? What are your thoughts on this? So I guess she got two questions in, Mm. sneaky. I actually think this five questions episode is like nine questions now that we <laughs> <laughs> have them all up. Getting yeah. a little lax. Um, so so I, I don't use Mint and I don't use YNAB. So I don't right. have a dog in this fight. Let, let me so lay I it down YNAB is more manual, right? So uh, we make zero dollars from both of them. Um, I've always been a fan of Mint and, you know, not to be like the, the past is whatever. The the differences between the two are um, in, in the general product and then the way they specifically approach budgeting. So YNAB 
is only a budget tool. It doesn't do anything else, only does a budget. Mint. So so if you want, if you're like, uh, your mom is like, Thomas, I'm not sure I believe in your business. How much are you worth? Uh, convince me that you're not poor. You wouldn't be able to answer that question in YNAB successfully because it doesn't oh, okay. include the full picture of, of everything that is you. Yeah. Mint um, includes your properties with their Zestimates, you know, credit cards, bank accounts, investments, um, quite a lot of investments are supported, Fundrise is supported, le- uh, uh, Lending Club, everything that I have is supported in Mint. Um, so, so that's one thing. You get like the full assets, everything on Mint, and you can see your actual net worth over time in Mint. YNAB, you can't. Um, Mint is free, a la you are the product, but it is yeah. still a very good product. YNAB, you pay, so you are not the product, but um, you still pay. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a monthly or yearly fee. And then uh, the, the, the meat and potatoes of it is how they handle budgeting. So um, I'm not an actuary, but perhaps I like that approach. <laughs> <laughs> Mint is a traditional uh, accounting approach where um, you make $1,000 and you spend 800 you allocate, you, you categorize your expenses accordingly, and the, the $200 difference is it savings, and, and that's that. In YNAB, yeah. their, their approach is every dollar has a job. So the at the end of every month, you will have a zero, it'll be zero because you'll have allocated the, the extra 200 to savings. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, so you're kind of like working your way down to zero using your resources. Exactly. And, you know, uh, it's honestly not that big of a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, it just isn't. And I think that you could kind of like wrap your brain around either side. So I wouldn't necessarily choose because of that. Uh, Intuit is behind Mint and they support like everything. I think that is kind of your weird ass mortgage that you have for your rental property. Like they support it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Like I said, I don't use either of these. Anna, actually, I think she's going to start using the envelope system. Like like physical envelope system? Yeah, which my mom has done for years and it works mm. wonders for her. But yeah, Anna's found that she just unconsciously spends and then gets down to a level where she's uncomfortable. So I don't really budget. I just kind of have a different approach to money. I just have a, like I said, I have a spreadsheet, which is my net worth calculator. Every few months I go in there and I just manually log into my accounts everywhere and I look at my balance and I add it and then there's percentage calculators built in and I look at it from there. Uh, the other thing is Mint is unworkable for me because oh, right. Mint does not play well with two-factor authentication on many different platforms, mainly Vanguard. It'll just try to log into Vanguard all day and not work and then Vanguard will be like, you have all these un- unauthorized login attempts <laughs> and I'm sure as shit not going to turn off 2FA on any mm. of my financial accounts because that's good security. So for me, it's like if I can't have a couple that have 2FA, you know, then I just am not going to use Mint because it would be an incomplete picture. So right, right. that's why I just use Google Sheets and I just log in and just type my balances. There's no connection to the bank accounts. There's no fancy stuff. It literally just is a numbers. 
Do you know that if you, and I don't know the answer to this, but like if you log into Mint and you're like, you hit sync, because you know, like sometimes, or at least for me, they're like, um, you know, it'll be like Wells Fargo and it's like, what's your favorite food? And then I have to type in my security question answer. Um, which which is PSA, cat- PSA, you should lie about that. Yeah, I was going to say it's cat food. Yeah, there you go. My, uh. My suggestion is you either lie about it or to make it easier for you to remember. Oh, lie about it in your answer and know that you lied about it so people who know you can't even guess it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, security questions. <laughs> That's it's so easy idea. to go on your Facebook and figure out what your favorite food is or what elementary school mm. you went to or your mom's maiden name. It's so dumb. So Damn it. In every picture of my life, I'm eating pizza. There you go. It's, it's obviously <laughs> yeah. pizza. But you could have like an additional phrase that you add to those things. So maybe like mm. it's cat food and then every question, like what's your mother's maiden name? Cat food Jones or something like that. That way if somebody looks it up, they can get Jones, but they won't know what your phrase is. And it could be the same phrase every time because oh then it fun- functions as a password that you're adding a salt to essentially. We super need to do a security episode and you need to school the shit because I have been thinking about your suggestion to create a separate email account for your accounts. You should. Like, I, I know. And I've been dwelling on it pretty much for weeks since we talked about it. And it's like, I have to do this. Oh my God. It's like a really good idea. And I think now I'm just going to like, you know, answer all the questions and add like cats or like horses or something at the, after every question, because no one would ever do that. That's like ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's super, it's kind of funny. Like imagine, imagine that your bank account number wasn't a number, but it was your address. Mm. Like you went, you went to freaking bank of America and you're like, my bank account number is, and you say your address mm. and people know your address cause they send you mail and maybe there's a yeah. password, but now they have one piece of the puzzle. It makes zero sense to use the same email address that you use to correspond with people and you post publicly to use as a login credential. It's but that's, that's the so way right because the internet if someone was determined grew. to hack you and they know that you're, you know, Thomas Frank is king at gmail.com. And then they just hack that email address. That uh, they'll be surprised, pleasantly unsurprised, or whatever it is, when it's not the one for your accounts, which is awesome. Yep. All I can do is send. I don't know. I can send porn to my family or something, which I wouldn't like. But at least. But they you already go into do that bank. anyways. So <laughs> yeah, but they send like really weird porn. They're like, like Thomas, your your taste has really declined <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Why are there clowns in this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we should do a security episode. I think while it isn't personal finance like through and through, it is kind of related to not losing money by being hacked or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, we should do that at some point. I could talk for days about security, but we shouldn't do it today. Uh, so that's that's Mint versus YNAP. I don't use either of them. The second question was about combining finances if you're married. Should you, should you not? Again, I have no dog in this fight because but I'm what not would you married. Do if you were. So I've talked with Anna about this mm-hmm. and Anna, she has even like for, for a record here, I make a lot more money than Anna does. Mm. Given that All right, we get it, Thomas, <laughs> given that she has, she has said herself, she, like one time we got on the discussion of what a prenup is. Uh, and mm-hmm. she was like, what is that? And I was like, basically it's a thing you sign that states that if you have, have a divorce, it's like whatever you brought in, you get like, it's not, mm-hmm. there's no split of assets due to a divorce. And she's like, well, I would want that. I wouldn't want you getting my, my dolls and my, you know, everything that I have. And I was like, huh? Usually you'd think that the person in the relationship who makes less money 
would not want to have a prenup or that they would just have a disgusted reaction to a prenup in the first place because a prenup is kind of a document that's like acknowledging the possibility of divorce, which even though statistically it's very likely to happen, it's like one of those things that people don't like to think about. Mm. Uh, But given that she has a very, uh, I guess not combining your finances view on this. It's like, Mm. I will have my money. You'll have your money, your money. And then we'll just decide what we need to put in to uh, pay for shared expenses. So our shared view on this is that there is no need to combine finances unless you have a kid. Like Hmm. plain and simple. If you're saving for a mortgage, if you're saving for a big vacation or something, if you're saving for something big, you get together and you decide, all right, here's the split that we're going to do for savings. And we'll save independently and we'll eventually pool that money together and buy the thing. But unless we have a human life that we're both taking care of together, then there's no real reason to combine finances unless for some lovey-dovey reason you really, really want to. But I don't know. She wants to be able to buy the stuff she wants to buy. And I want to be able to buy the stuff I want to buy. So um, that's decent logic. Um, I subscribe slightly differently. Laura and I have our finances combined. And um, I certainly have – my feelings have changed over the years. But I think generally uh, is the same is in that uh, I I wouldn't like knowingly do something that I think I would fail at. Especially I like talk about like a shitty business deal. I mean – like let's sign a contract until you die. I'm pretty sure there's nothing else <laughs> in life that, that you do that for. Yep. Um, but anything that has been worth it in my life has not been easy, marriage included. And I think Laura and I have a great relationship. So I think um, you got to like be in it to win it, or at least that's my perspective with combining your finances. I also think that it helps with um, like uh, focused goals. We get a lot of emails on like, couples uh almost competing in in the way they spend you know well hmm. thomas bought a 250 dollar coach bag so i want to buy a 250 dollar i don't know sandal sandals or i don't know like i think that if you both want the same thing and uh you should both be able to hold each other's feet to the fire for stupid expenses um if you need to have some flex spending in your relationship then you could do that it doesn't preclude keeping your finances together. Um, Of course, then all your finances are together. So if one makes more than the other, which is very likely, you have to perhaps come up with um, rules. Like I made more than Laura for the extent of our relationship, but that didn't mean that I could spend more money on like shit for me because I made more. That's not fair. When, When we didn't have our finances combined, you know, we prorated expenses based on who made what. I, I think it, it doesn't matter. Maybe perhaps except in the kid situation, which I think like if you divorce and you have a kid, well, let the judge, you know, let the kid win. Yeah. I don't know. Like, again, Anna and I are young. We're not mm-hmm. married. There's a lot of life experience we don't have. At, at this point, I'm just like, well, you guys aren't married, so you shouldn't combine. Right, we're not we're because, not married, but we've been together yeah. for five years. So, at, at this point, marriage is going to be a formality. Mm. You know, 
Unless we oh, have a you kid. you think that. Okay, yeah, maybe I think that. <laughs> There's a bunch of people who are going to be like, well, here's my life experience. And boy, oh boy, you don't want kids now. You're going to want kids eventually. And of course, you're going to move back to the Midwest and have 2.5 kids the, the, to picket white fence and whatever. And if you think you're not going to do that now, you're just young and naive and you're never going to be a rapper. But again i've never met a 0.5 kid before <laughs> oh there's tons of them in the midwest trust me you're just walking around just little pairs of legs just only the bottom half just the bottom half yep it's always the bottom half because gravity you know it all just kind of sinks down to the bottom um i don't know like i guess like i make more money so i do buy things that cost more for myself mm. than anna can buy for herself and neither of us thinks that's unfair so, you know, she's like, she makes her money and I make my money, but also I don't, I don't require anything more of her domestically than I do. At this point, I cook more than she does. We probably clean equally. Like we both put in the equally to the non-monetary aspects of the relationship. We both work. We both do our own thing. And I guess that works for us. So really the, I think the answer is like, what works for you? Uh, and then the other thing is it's, it's a, it's a communication on a individual basis. So if she really wants something and she can't afford it and I'm like, well, that would be cool to have. Let's do it. Like just recently, like I bought her a new fish tank because the fish tank that she had was kind of crappy and it was like off in a corner. We couldn't see the fish. And I was like, I could see why you would want a different fish tank. And I think mm -hmm. it'll improve our house. And so I'm just going to buy it. You don't have to save up for months and months. I'll just buy it. I did whatever. So I don't know. I, again, it all comes down to communication and I didn't I think, think about this it. before, I think that's like the but clincher. at the end of the day, combining your finances is just like applying a rule set that might expedite communication. And I don't think there is a, there is a right or wrong answer here. You could choose mm -hmm. not to combine your finances and then just rely on better communication to make things work. And I, mm -hmm. for now that's what we're doing. Maybe we'll change. I don't know. But I, I don't, I don't you think do, you like, you'll have to let us know. Yeah. I don't think that if you choose to or choose not to, you've made the wrong decision. You just do what feels right to you. Mm. Uh, if you have a kid, combine some expenses. And be, I say that because like, if you're sharing a mortgage, you know how much the mortgage costs. It's mm. a thousand bucks a month. Okay. Each of us put $500 into the mortgage fund. We have a shared mortgage fund maybe. And then we pay out of that. But with a kid, they're going to have some stupid field trip they're going to go on. And then their, their teacher's going to be like, yo, we actually need like super sparkly, glittery gold Sharpie pens for this class that cost $25 each. So you got to buy that now. There's like all kinds of expenses that you're not going to anticipate. And it's just, it's worthwhile to have a combined fund that is not just like a set amount that you know you're going to spend because you don't know what you're going to spend. True. So that's, that's my view on it. All right. Last question before we wrap up. Uh, this is from Brody. Hey guys, I recently started your you're following your podcast and I really enjoy it. I get a lot of great content and I can always dive into the show notes for more info. So also your guests are great and your interviews are relatable. And this whole paragraph is just flattering. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, don't you love how we include all the praise? I, I think you just don't like rewrite the questions. And no, just we just literally them. just pasted it. <laughs> All right. My wife and I recently. That's right. Track. Real people like listening to us. True. Yeah. Which amazes me. Not paid actors. These are real people. <laughs> we really use the Swiffer wet jet. And here's what they okay. have to say. Some are paid actors. <laughs> 
My wife and I recently <laughs> finished grad school and landed pretty decent jobs in our fields. We moved away from all of our family and friends to pursue our own adventures, but ended up in an area that is blowing up in terms of their housing market. <laughs> is this me? <laughs> <laughs> we're saving up pretty quickly while renting even while paying off our minor student loans and we want to buy but it seems like the wrong time right now our savings are sitting in a typical savings account earning pennies we want to start investing but we don't know where to start and we'd like to keep growing our nest egg when for when the market turns and we can buy low but we'd like something more aggressive than a savings or a cd financial advisors seem prohibitively expensive for what we bring to the table and i wouldn't know where to start to build my own portfolio so do you guys have suggestions on where to start and how to take that first step. What resources might prove straightforward and not overload the info for beginners? Could make for a good episode, as I know there are at least a few listeners who are in the same boat as I am, listening religiously, taking good notes, but overall feeling a bit lost about how to start. So yeah, dude wants to buy a house. Uh, mm -hmm. Would not be surprised if he lives in Denver, but I don't know, could also live in <laughs> Dallas or Portland or San Diego or any one of the other ridiculously rapidly growing metros with a crazy housing market that mm. will suck all of your money down forever. Um, the thing is, and we've said this in past episodes, if you're planning on buying a house in the next couple of years, then any gains you're going to make in an investment, even the kind of investments that we recommend here are going to be small enough that they don't necessarily offset the risk that you run that the stock market takes a downturn during the buy low time in the housing market. Mm. And honestly, I'm not an economist and I can't say this with a lot of confidence, but I wouldn't be surprised if the reason the housing market takes a downturn is because the stock market is in the crapper. Yeah. Everyone's like, fuck, I got to sell my house. No one has money to buy houses. My money's gone. It could be a, you know, those two could be very correlated. So you're just like, yes, all the house prices are low and all my money's gone because I put it all in stock market. You know, even if you put and, it in like Betterman or Vanguard or Wealthfront or whatever it is that, you know, has like a, a relatively decent chance of doing well, it's you're always going to have years that are down. Even in my you, Vanguard so fund, I've had years that are down. You're always going to be subject to the risk. But also like I, I neither of us and, and I would be shocked if anyone would would disagree or thought that they knew better in terms of like, is the market going to crash tomorrow this year? next year or in 50 years from now because you know if the market was going to crash tomorrow then it'd be really prudent to not invest well, right if the market was going to crash tomorrow we would have crashed already or a something any amount of certainty about a crash is going to cause the crash to happen sooner because people exactly. are pull out but you know if you think that it's going to crash tomorrow or, or you're worried that it might crash soon and you don't invest and uh it turns out the market goes up for another I don't know, 20, 35 even years, you're going to miss out on a ton of gains. There are a lot of people who didn't invest after 2008 because they had, they had bought higher or they were nervous of the market and they missed the single longest bull run, like um, awesome returns, like something like 50% or whatever uh, since then. And so uh, instead of attempting to predict, which none of us can do, I mean, if we're for real about it, um, you should just cautiously go in slowly over time. Yeah. Uh, so um, you have a couple of options here. You could go in slowly. You could have a little bit that you're putting in the stock market and you could have more that you're saving in a savings account for a mortgage. Uh, and you know, that's a scenario where you're like, all right, we want to buy within two years and we really want to. So we're just going to save. Or 
if you're a little more flexible, you could put a lot more money in uh, index fund or something like that. Keep a little bit in your savings account for an emergency fund, but start building wealth a little more quickly. And then once you've built up to the point where you could make a down payment, make it. But mm-hmm. it may take longer or you may hit a down year and you may have to wait a while. So if you're going in slowly over time, that's called dollar cost averaging. We'll link to the episode in the show notes, awesome article associated with that. And, and basically it's if you have $10,000, um, instead of putting it all in at once, which actually has a better return than dollar cost averaging. However, it's much higher risk. Instead, you could say put in a thousand a month over 10 months. Yeah. So, you know, you're slowly buying as the market goes up or you're buying as the market goes up, it crashes and then you're buying as it's, as it's really low. So it kind mm-hmm. of averages it out. Um, so that was that, uh, when it come, but, and also I just wanted to say that, uh, say you bought today and it literally crashed tomorrow and everything halved in value. And I don't know, you're 30 and you're going to retire when you're 60. You have only lost money if you sell at a loss. So if you bought it and it was high or, or medium or whatever, and you're going to retire when you're 60. So you're going to keep it till when you're 60. It is almost certainly going to be higher then. So you didn't lose anything until you sell it. So this is just like crazed things that happen in, in your mind as you look at numbers, right? Yeah. So so that's like the market end. Um, in terms of the housing end, I think uh, there's like two halves. There's the investment property end. And with the investment property end, uh, doesn't matter what the house price is because uh, there's a mathematical model that you can apply to determine if you will cash flow and make money. Um, and we built something. Oh, so are you saying like buy an investment property and then maybe eventually live in it? Well, so I guess I was splitting it as like investment property versus property that you live in as okay. your home. So investment property is really easy because it is a business and there's math involved and it was a pain in the balls for me to do it. So I built a tool, um, link in the show notes, simplewealth.co. Uh, and you just could plug the address in, tweak the numbers accordingly, and it'll tell you if it make if it makes sense. Maybe the housing prices are three times higher than they were last year. But if it's a positive cash flow, then I would do it. Um, you know, and you have to agree on your thresholds. When it comes to a house that you live in, um, that's generally a money sink and it is usually not profitable. Yep. Um, and so that comes down to emotion and how often or how long you think you're going to live there. Mm-hmm. If you're going to live there for three years. Uh, maybe not a good idea slash maybe you got to wait for prices to be good. Um, but if you're going to live there for 30 years and then pass it on to your kids and whatever, and you're just certain that this is the one corner, corner lot, whatever, uh, the timing doesn't really matter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it, it, so it, to wrap up in terms of straightforward investing, I don't know. There's simple, easy to get into options that don't take a whole lot of research. Mm. You can do a Vanguard fund. I'm sure that, uh, you know, what are, what are some of the other investment banks like Schwab or whatever right, right. have similar index funds. We like index funds. We've got posts on that. There are mm-hmm. robo advisors like Betterman or Wealthfront that make it even easier, have a slightly higher fee, but still way, way lower than you're going to pay with a financial advisor. Um, 
and weirdly enough, my betterment returns have been better than Vanguard. So probably <laughs> because I slid the risk thing all the way up to a hundred and then they just like put me in developing markets. <laughs> That's probably the reason to be honest. Yeah, you right. Yeah. Cause I'm young. Whatever. Uh, and then again, like if you want to buy, then th- those gains are probably not going to offset the risk that you'll be trying to buy. And then the market's down at an mm. unfortunate time. So just keep that in mind and make your decision. Um, the other thing I'll say is this is obviously an emotional decision, but if you move to, to a place with a crazy housing market and you really want to buy a house, like, does it have to be there? I don't know. It's just food for thought. Yeah. I agree. Uh, ask yourself, like, what do I, what do I get out of this, out of this crazy place I live in with the crazy housing market? Maybe you have an amazing network of friends. Maybe you have like a job you can only do there, in which case, sure, that's the reality you deal with. But maybe it's like, we're here because we are doing things that we thought we would do, but it turns out that we're not. And we could actually maybe move to like one town over or something where it's a little bit less mm. expensive and then go visit the cool town sometimes on the weekends. You know, it's, that's a question to answer for yourselves, but it's something to think about. All right. We have another episode to record with a guest coming up. So I'm going to wrap this one up. Thank you to everyone who emailed their questions in. And if you, dear listener, are listening to this and you've got a question about your own finances uh, that you really want answered and you think for some godforsaken reason that we would have any sort of qualifications to answer that, number one, you're probably wrong. But Hint, we don't have any qualifications. We can use Google. <laughs> we're good at that. <laughs> I do think I bought that this I'm, microphone. <laughs> we're decently good at research and we own microphones. That's our qualifications. And you can email us, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. If you have questions, I think Andrew sometimes is able to actually answer them directly, but we also like to collect the best ones and then answer them in these five questions episodes. And a lot of times they inspire full episodes as well. Mm. I think we got a couple instances of that within this one. So definitely email us your questions. Email us listener catchphrases too. We had to steal a quote from Family Guy this time, but hey, (laughs) you guys aren't supplying us with enough original money puns or it songs. was actually submitted by it was, Garrett via email. So. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Garrett. So, you know. And it was honestly a pretty funny quote. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I read it. I was just laughing. There's like there's certain things in Family Guy that I think are really funny, and that's mm-hmm. one of them. Uh, otherwise, you can check out our favorite apps, tools, resources. Maybe YNAB is on it. I can't remember. I think Mint is uh, within yeah. our toolbox. Both are. Yeah. All kinds of stuff is in there. Our favorite books are in there. And you can find all of those links over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox and also the show notes for this episode at listenmoneymatters.com slash show where you will find our newly redesigned, ultra fast and much more usable website that mm, Andrew has so spent hot and sexy. months and probably a few gray hairs coding. So yes. check it out. Thanks for listening and we will see you in the next episode. Later. Later, man. Please tell your friends about this show. (laughs) 